and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name's Callum Watt, and as ever, I am joined by Callum Roper. Hello there, everyone. And Bradley Alsop. Good afternoon, folks. And uh, this week, today, we'll be talking about the new advice coming from the government, uh, the advice for the last few weeks since the beginning of uh, the lockdown was to stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Easily remembered, most people have been uh, sticking quite diligently to it. But now today the advice is going to change. Uh, The new advice is going to be stay alert, control the virus and save lives. So less of a command, and apparently the uh, it's not it's no longer a command. It's going to be uh, advisory. Uh, what do you think about this new change, Callum? Uh, well, uh, I think it's it's extremely dangerous. I think we're at a, such a crucial point in in combating this virus. We need to have the same lockdown, if not stronger, right now in order to contain it properly. But this advice seems to be going in the complete opposite direction. You know, it's it's going towards lifting the lockdown when we don't need a lockdown lifted because we're going to end up in another situation where we'll be in a lockdown in a few months' time because we're going to have a second wave of this, which is going to risk more lives, thousands more dead potentially again. And it's extremely dangerous. I mean, the advice that Boris, so he, he tried to clear this up and he said, so what does it mean by staying alert? So apparently it's to stay at home as much as possible, work from home if you can, limit contact with other people, keep your distance if you go out, brackets two metres apart where possible, and wash your hands regularly. What it seems to me is that this is very vague, very wishy-washy, and where there is any advice with any substance, it's just being treated as advice, not as an order or an instruction. And we're not going to be able to maintain a lockdown of, of any standard if, if we just have this vague advice being thrown around. I think it is extremely dangerous. And some people will only be seeing headlines in newspapers, as we saw this week, saying that basically that's the end of the lockdown. And again, we're risking lives there. And this is not a game to be played with. And I think that the language, you know, Boris has got a history of how he uses his language and how it can be interpreted. And in this case, I think it's deliberately vague to try and effectively push the blame of, of, of poor management onto people that are effectively listening to vague advice or not listening to vague advice because they don't know what it's saying. I think it's interesting. What's really interesting to me as well is, you know, stay at home as much as possible. Well, yes, we, we have been. Um, most people have been following uh, Michael Gove's advice to uh, go out for an hour a day. Obviously, you still need to do your shopping, so you might go out for that. The second point, uh, work from home if you can. Well, I know that uh, some employers have been a bit difficult about that, but uh, I know that in in unison we've had some victories in making employers allow their workers uh, to work at home and to facilitate that. Um, Limit contact with other people. Again, people staying in their homes refer to the first point. Keep your distance if you go out two metres apart. There are literal lines in Tesco's uh, to uh, to help you do that. Okay, not everyone sticks to them rigidly, but most people do. Wash your hands regularly. Yeah, everyone has been uh, doing that. So to some extent, nothing's changed. The, The... issue is that these are no longer as you say commands 
Um, and it'll be interesting when the, because uh, we're recording before Boris Johnson makes the formal announcement at 7pm tonight on the 10th of May. It'll be interesting to see tonight what Boris Johnson says about the legal element of it, because in his, in his, when he first announced the lockdown, he said the police will have powers to enforce these rules. Um, and they still do. Those are all active for the next, um, uh, it was for two years, so most of the next two years. Um, so will the police be still enforcing these rules if the, uh, if the, uh, if the, if the, if it's now changed into advice? Uh, what do you think, Bradley? Uh, I think if it, if it's advice rather than strict rules, I, I don't, I don't see how they can, the police can be having the same powers and the, the same scope as they did before. Um, it, it just doesn't really make sense. And I think, I, th- I think what this will be the start of will be a slow sort of easing of the lockdown um, without, without it being announced as such. Um, I think Boris is, is, is trying to clear the path between the two where on the one side he, he'll be criticised for, for ending the lockdown too quickly and on the other he'll be criticised for, for dragging it on too long. So I think he, his response to that will be a slow easing that, he, he can kind of say we're still taking social distancing measures um, and, and people have been advised to stay at home and, and to keep the virus under control, which is the new slogan. Um, but I think really what this will be will be the beginning of the end of the lockdown. Um, and, and I think it's far too soon for that. If you, if you look at the number of daily cases, we're still getting recorded, the number of deaths. Um, we, we can't contact trace um, all, all new cases. And we obviously don't have a, a vaccine ready to go either. So I, I don't see how this doesn't result in, in a second wave of, of infections and deaths in, in the near future. I, I just don't see how that isn't going to be how this ends. The the Scottish government has contradicted it entirely. They've said that uh, we're going to stick with the lockdown. Uh, in Wales, I think the only thing they're changing is that they're going to open up the um, the garden centres so that they can offload some of their plants. Um, I think that's the only major change that they've made. Um, so, given that those other uh, those other authorities. Um, are sticking with it. Why do you think it's different uh, in in England, Bradley? Uh, I think we have a. I mean, if you if you look from the start, we, we've had a government that's, that's been out of sync with most most of the major European leaders um, in in terms of how we've responded to the crisis. So we we took too long to go into lockdown, um, and you know. We've read all sorts of things, and I think eventually it, it will require, um, you know, a proper investigation as to, as to what happened. But it, but it sounds like Boris himself, personally, and elements within the Conservative Party were, were sort of ideologically opposed to, to the idea of a lockdown and, and and that level of sort of state in, intervention in, in people's personal lives in in that manner. Um, although I, I'm not suggesting he, he's a, a defender of freedom usually. Um, so I, I think that. Is playing a role now again, um, in terms of, of wanting to, to end the lockdown. Um, there's all this stuff about herd immunity and how that was. I mean, I mean, you know, they pretty much came out and said that that was their plan early on, and then sort of backtracked afterwards and said, "Oh no, herd immunity was never really the plan. Uh, we're, we're going into lockdown now." Um, but but it was 
pretty much their plan early on. And I think, to be honest, I don't think that those sorts of influences have ever really left their response to, to the crisis. Uh, I think they've probably sensed there's maybe some public attitude to end the lockdown now. Uh, maybe maybe, maybe Boris is worried about uh, what an extended lockdown would do for his, for his ratings. Uh, he's doing pretty well in the polls at the moment, but maybe he's worried that that won't be the case if we, if we carry on with lockdown much longer. Maybe it's just because European countries have done it already. So, so Germany has is, is already started easing measures. Um, so, so maybe that's enough of an excuse they, they've calculated for them to begin to ease it. But of course, Germany's done considerably better. They don't have 30,000 deaths. Um, we are much more analogous in, in our performance to, uh, to America. Uh, how do you think it relates to, to the experience over there? Well, uh, I suppose, I, I think really the fundamental between between the two countries is that they're governed by leaders that don't understand the, 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 the virus. They, they don't understand um, how to appropriately respond to a pandemic um, and they've, they've not taken it seriously enough from the start. I think that's been our problem um, from day one. Uh, I, I also think we're two regimes that have had difficult national conversations about expertise and the role of expertise in politics. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, I, th- I think there are legitimate reasons to worry about the influence people that claim to be experts have on our politics. I think it's a, it's a bit of a neoliberal trope that we should just let experts decide everything, because um, that, that inherently depoliticizes the views and suggests the only relevant factor is, is just expert knowledge, and, and that's not true. Um, but I don't think the way we've had those debates in our country and America has been a helpful way to have those debates. You know, they, they, there's reasonable discussions to be had about the balance of power and the role of expertise in unelected officials in governance. That, that there's sensible debates to be had about how that should be structured. We haven't had that in, the, in these countries the last couple of years. What, what we've had, well, really the last five years, what we've had is a sort of a, uh, a, a rising against any form of expert opinion, um, primarily stoked by right-wing demagogues. Um, they have disparaged any sort of expert or established opinion um, in order to, to gain um, electoral success. So we, we've seen it with Trump and, and we, we saw it with Brexit and, and, and Barack's rise to power. Um, and I, I think that probably unites the response of our two countries as well. They're, they are not leaders that are happy to sit and listen to expert advice if they feel like it might damage their own personal ambitions, I think. And they, and they will happily go against expert advice if, if they feel they need to. Um, so I think that influences to some degree with America. So what do you think should be the response of ordinary people, ordinary uh, workers who... Uh, I mean, the other thing that, that has happened in the last week is that uh rishi sunak who is the uh shadow chancellor said that he would be looking to quote wean people off uh, the furlough scheme um and you know because that was introduced very early on um arguably at the behest of labor uh, which called for it quite, um, almost immediately for uh, people to get at least 80 percent of their salaries paid effectively by the state um, most employers, a lot of employers have, have followed through with that. and But now we've got this slightly dangerous tendency, and there was one MP, anonymous MP, I believe, a Tory, unsurprisingly, um, who said uh, it's quite easy 
to uh, to like the lockdown uh, if you're uh, being paid almost as much as you would be if you were working. So you wait until that furlough scheme ends. And I found that so insidious um, because for someone like that, who, you know, we don't know uh, who it was, but we know that there was, uh, I think it was, uh, was it Jenrick uh, who said that people had been almost too willing to go along with the uh, uh, with uh, with the lockdown and not go to work. They're trying to talk about people as being work shy while they're shut up in their mansions, you know, um, and saying that you know people should put themselves at risk and they're going to try and starve us. And it is us. They are going to try and starve us into going back to work and putting ourselves at risk. Uh, and our families as well, don't forget. Um, that is their intention. They they are absolutely psychopathic. Psych, absolutely psychopathic, Callum. I, I think just the language of, of weaning people off, you know, it's, it, it's vile. It really is. It's implying that hardworking people are refusing to go back to work because they're getting a free handout. The reason why they're not going back to work is because it's damn right dangerous for their health, not just for themselves, but their families and anyone else that they come into contact with in their daily commute. It's extremely irresponsible to effectively be taunting, removing any help possible just to get them back into work. But really, it should be expected from this government. It's exactly what they've done before. The prior governments we've seen under Theresa May, under David Cameron, the exact same things of this hostile environment to anybody that isn't them, whether you be an immigrant, whether you be working class, you know, no matter what, it's a hostile environment. And we're just seeing a return of it in a different guise. And I think it's damn right disgusting that people are being put through this. Mm. So I think something to, that's very important to emphasize to people as well is uh, that if you're coming under pressure, whether it's going into work, putting yourself, and this applies mainly, I would say, to the, to the health service, but it also you know, applies to uh, any area of the economy, really. If you feel like you're under pressure to go into an unsafe environment, you are protected by Section 44 of the Employment Rights Acts 1996. You don't have to go in if you feel like you are... Uh, you can you're allowed to challenge the adequacy and suitability of any safety arrangements and not worry about losing your job the first thing that you should do is join a bloody union to protect you to protect yourself because at the end of the day if you don't do that then it will be much harder for you to take a, an employer to tribunal if it gets that far and also in my experience as someone who works for a trade union very often the mere mention that you're consulting with your union is enough to make the employer go, ooh, uh, actually, maybe we should do something, right? That happens so often, you know, and people people, um, people are sometimes kind of scared to um, join, join the union because they think they'll be discriminated against, um, which itself would be uh, a case, um, or because they don't want to, to pay the affiliation fee, but it's a fraction, you know. All unions have a graded system usually, uh, based on your salary, how much you pay. So it's a tiny fraction of what you earn for all of those protections. So just to return to the coronavirus advice, if you feel like you're being put at risk, you can refuse to put yourself at risk. Don't do it. Then 
write to your manager, put it in writing, don't just say it, put it in writing, your concerns, and ask them what they're going to do to improve those situations. And you do not have to work in that environment until those uh, concerns are actually dealt with. And if that's a problem, the union must step in and protect you. Um, In some unions, there's... uh, or in most unions, there's a rule where you have to be a member for a certain amount of time uh, before uh, we'll represent you. In unison, that's four weeks. In the case of coronavirus, that's completely waived. So don't keep be concerned about that. Join a union, protect yourself, protect others, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Don't follow the government on this. Follow the actual science. That would be uh, that would be uh, uh, my advice yeah. uh, to workers. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good point about people that that can still work from home. Um, they they should, but also it's not just about work. It's about you know I think I think we might maybe over the next couple of weeks start to see to see shops and businesses open again. Um, I mean, I, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong if, if you if you quickly pop into a shop or something. But you know, if if we get to the point where we've still got a lot of cases opening, but we might see restaurants or bars opening, I think I don't think, I don't think that's going to happen today. I don't think Boris is going to announce that's fine today. Um, but we might come to a point in the next few weeks where that where those sorts of businesses start to open again. But it won't necessarily be safe actually for for us to be going that's what i'm really worried about when we start to see bars and things open again but we might still have a, a, a thousand two thousand new cases a day um it's resisting the urge to do social things as well i think people need to be able to do uh i think that's that's the most dangerous thing is is the government sort of giving people the impression that it's sort of okay to start doing those things again um but i, I don't think we're there yet i don't think that's true so i think people being able to resist those sorts of urges as well where they can is going to be quite is is a way of, of fighting back as well, I think. But yeah, if you're in a workplace where you're being forced to go back to work, um, join a union. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the uh, it'll be it will be interesting to observe. Uh, as I say, we don't know what Boris Johnson's going to say tonight. Um, some, sometimes we find that he, because um, at, at the beginning of this week, a lot of the papers were saying, "Oh, it's going to be Happy Monday," you know. Uh, the country is going to be open up again, and the the government had to row back on it. So we might we might see uh, a little bit less than we fear coming from Boris Johnson. But it is worrying that there's been any change at all. It does seem to be un- somewhat unnecessary uh, to say that we're changing the slogan and we're cha- um, changing the tone. But we'll we'll see what's uh, actually uh, announced this evening, uh, and we'll find that there's an appropriate response. And we hope as well that uh, the uh, opposition parties in Parliament will also uh, hold the government's feet to the fire. Um, Another class issue that uh, people have been uh, raising since the beginning of the coronavirus uh, outbreak is not just conditions at work, but also uh, if you are not able to work or if you're struggling, let's remember that self-employed people haven't been as well looked after in this crisis as they could have been. Um, Many workers... Uh, who uh, are in what we call the the gig economy um, are technically classed as self-employed. So they've had difficulties getting furloughed, uh, for example. Um, And there are a lot of people who are in real danger of 
be becoming homeless as a result of uh, this crisis or when unscrupulous landlords uh, thinking only about their own pockets uh, decide to kick them out. Um, we have said in previous podcasts, by the way, that rough sleeping had been eliminated uh, in England. Um, that's not actually true. It's since emerged that there have been many people who have fallen through the gaps, although, of course, um, uh, a significant number of people who were rough sleeping uh, have been housed, and we need to do better uh, with that. So there's now a real prospect of key workers, by the way, ending up on the streets as a result of this uh, uh, crisis. Um, landlords have been given a mortgage holiday. Uh, that doesn't mean that they don't have to pay off their mortgage, but that just means they don't have to make payments for the same time. And there's a very strong argument for saying that uh, renters who are in that situation, who aren't able to pay their rent, should be forgiven. There should be a no eviction policy. I think, to be fair, most people would agree with that. However, uh, the question that has been raised uh, by uh, by the actions of the opposition of the Labour Party has been uh, what happens after the crisis uh, ends. Uh, Callum, you uh, you have uh, more on this story, I believe. Yeah, so Labour has been talking about extending this eviction ban, but the issue that has arise that well, it has, it has arisen from what they've been saying is that people feel that they haven't gone far enough from what they're saying. So they're not saying anything like, a, you know, giving renters a break or like a, a financial holiday as the landlords are. Tenants are effectively still expected to pay, but they're going to be expected to pay as soon as physically possible, but they just won't get evicted during this current, current period. There's no protections for them further down the line, as far as I understand. There's no protections for them, say, in, I don't know, by the end of the year, say we're out of this um, crisis, people could still be evicted, which is, that's that's the issue, is, is how we deal with it afterwards. There's a number of concerns about people after this. For example, with the furlough scheme, where you get rid of the furlough scheme, that's basically pulling the carpet from a number of people who will then effectively get sacked by their their the businesses they work for, their, their employer. The same can be said for tenants in this situation, is that once you remove the safety net that's been put in place for COVID, there's no measures to help them get back on their feet afterwards. It's just expecting them to, you know, take it on the chin and get on with it. And that's the issue. That's that's the serious issue for, for people is that many people can't just take it on the chin such a big financial hit, expecting to pay a full rent from a period where they barely made any money. And if they're not making any money afterwards, once they get back to work, if they get back to work, they're not going to be earning a big enough wage to pay their rent. And they're not going to be able to catch up if they're living paycheck to paycheck. So where where, where are we going to put them? What are we going to do? We, is rough sleeping then going to go up further? Are we, after this small window of hope of getting rid of rough sleeping, are we then going to see the complete opposite? Is it going to spike? So that I think that the, the Labour Party needs to get its arse in gear, really, because there is a big crisis coming up in terms of housing, in terms of employment, and we need to be ready. And it seems to be they're just towing the same line as the government on a number of things, which is which is unacceptable. 
Mm. I mean, I think it's quite important to emphasise, um, and again, as someone who went through previous eras of uh, the Labour Party uh, in opposition, um, it's um, it's reassuring in a way that uh, this week Keir Starmer has says we can't go back to austerity, right? Because uh, you know that's that that was the real bugbear during the Miliband era. That's why we couldn't win in 2015 because we felt were fundamentally offering nothing different in terms of core economic policy, um, and that is going to be the big push from the government and the media and those who support them uh, and the big donors and so on would be to implement what I think the Telegraph called austerity 2.0, um, and we are unambiguously I hope going to be opposing that it does look like we will um, likewise we don't uh, we don't seem to be supporting uh, the weaning off uh, furlough either uh, which is good people need that money at the end of the day if they're if they're not working um, but yes yeah, so the I, I think that Sukir Samar obviously is trying to pitch to I mean it's a little bit of pitching to the center isn't it because obviously we there are uh, sure, plenty of landlords who probably do or would lo- vote Labour. Um, they are obviously a tiny minority of the population, um, but uh, and in the interests of fairness, I suppose uh, the, the 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 argument would go that landlords are getting a mortgage holiday, but they still have to pay off the mortgage. Right, so the, the the debt isn't just wiped out. So it makes sense for the renter who is also sort of paying off that mortgage. Um, yes, okay, maybe they don't have to uh, pay the rent right now, but they should pay it back later at, at, as arrears. And I think the current uh, proposal from Labour is that they should be given two years uh, to do that. Now, uh, on paper, and it's a, it's a very uh, liberal thing, isn't it, to have it, all things equal, um, but unfortunately, it doesn't take into account the fact that the burden is not equal in that respect. Um, if, at the end of the day, um, a landlord who uh, has bought a property to rent it out, a buy-to-let landlord, they've done it as an investment. Many people do it to supplement their pensions and things like that. And to some extent, you know, that that uh, that is sound financial advice. I don't uh, necessarily blame people for thinking that was a good idea. But at the end of the day, if that, uh, and we can talk about how it's an inherently exploitative relationship. I, I don't like the idea of private renting. I'd never be a landlord myself. But um, fundamentally, if that investment goes wrong, they've still got a house at the end of the day, even if it's losing money. If it's losing money, the landlord will sell the house, sell the assets long before they go bankrupt. But for the tenant, if they are lumbered with yet another debt that they have to pay off, they are at risk of being evicted. They're at risk of going to small claims court, all of these sorts of things. They don't have an asset which they can just sell off to pay off that debt. So the burden isn't equal. Um, and so it's not really fair to say, it's not fair to say that landlords are getting a mortgage holiday and, and that, that they pay it off later and uh, renters uh, should have to pay off their arrears. It's not an equal burden. It should be uh, treated 
uh, as such. If you're working in the interests of working people, that should be our perspective. And I, I hope that uh, Labour will change its position on that. What, uh, do you think there would be a more uh, a reasonable? What would, what would be a more reasonable approach? Do you think? Well, I think I think it's really it's at, I think you're right about about who, who's more able to bear, bear it because you know it, it's completely out of touch with the reality for many people that rent. Um, millions of people in this country that rent, you know, the idea that they could also afford to 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 pay a bit a bit extra um, towards the rent that they they've you know if rent's frozen for for a few months and then further down the line we'll we'll get them to sort of slowly pay that off over a two year period that. For many people on on the poverty line, that that is potentially a death sentence. You know, the idea that they could pay extra money back on top of what all their other outgoings um, over a sustained period of time is completely out of touch with the reality of many people that, that privately rent in this country. For for millions, that's just an unbearable burden. And um, so, you know, ultimately, I think landlords are in a much better position to to bear that burden. But if there are individual landlords that can't, for whatever reason, bear it, then it should be the government that's stepping up and dealing with it. Yeah, and there's no other solution because if you just leave things as they are, um, you've got if you're if you're renting a property, you've got a contract which is a legal document. You're obliged to pay pay your rent, and if you can't pay your rent, you are evicted unless the landlord is very very benevolent. Um, they can evict you if they want to. Um, so therefore, this requires a state intervention. Maybe it requires another furlough scheme for renters. Uh, arguably, um, should we be subsidising uh, big landlords? Mm. I mean, it's it's a moral point, but it, it's it's a solution. Um, I've got a solution. What's Why that? don't we build a hell of ton more of social houses? Now, there's an idea. Yeah, there it's, is it's, an it's, idea. It's crazy, and I'm surprised nobody's ever thought of that before. But, you know, when we had a housing crisis before, you know, we had the Second World War as, you know, reflecting as we have on that over this last week. After the Second World War, we built a number of houses. Some of them were prefabs, but they met the need. They met the need. People needed houses, and they needed them to be affordable, and they needed them to keep them safe, keep them dry, you know. And that's what they did. They went out and, you know, there was social housing built. Why don't we do that again? I think that, you know, Labour should certainly be pushing on this. The social housing is crucial because it gives an affordable rent to people and it gives people that safe roof over their head where they need it the most. It should be really for the most vulnerable people in our society. There's nowhere near enough social housing to meet the demand at the moment. And I think, see, I was going to uh, sorry, uh, badly. I was going to say that um, I, I was going to say that might be a bit impractical given uh, the current lockdown conditions and what we were talking about earlier. But um, since the government is talking about uh, maybe construction coming back uh, during the course of this sort of lockdown, um, yeah, maybe, maybe some of that construction work could go towards uh, building prefabricated uh, homes for uh, people people who need them. Absolutely. Um, where I was born and spent the first six years of my life in Luton, uh, there was actually a, a large part of town called Tin Town. Um, you wouldn't know it now because it's they've all been bricked over, but originally they were all uh, prefabricated tin-based dwellings. 
uh, on a hillside uh, that have been built immediately after the Second World War. So, yes, it, it can be done. Sorry, Bradley, I cut across you. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that that is an example of here is a, a immediate issue, but underneath it are larger, more systemic problems, one of which is a lack of social affordable social housing in this country. Um, so, so what that is, is a let's tackle the issue at the root sort of response. And that's the thing we saw in, under Corbyn and the direction the party was going in, was this, this idea of, yes, there are these short-term issues that we are going to try and address, but we're also going to see them as, as tips of the iceberg, as it were, you know, of, of larger systemic issues. And we're also going to develop policy to tackle those. I think that's what we saw in the 2017 and definitely in the 2019 manifesto. I think that that's my biggest worry about a Keir Starmer-led Labour Party is that we'll we'll start to neglect tackling issues at the root and, and we'll just be reactive to, to short-term issues. I think that that's my biggest worry and, and the thing that I, the long-term thinking I, I'm worried we're not going to see um, in, in the Starmer. Mm. I think the um, I think the thing for us to do um, uh, and Owen, I, I, I like the Owen Jones approach uh, to this, to this sort of problem, um, you have to. Uh, the, at the end of the day, I don't think the leadership is going to do that planning for us. And actually, arguably, maybe in the long run, that's a healthy thing, because uh, is there an argument perhaps that the labour movement was a bit spoiled under Corbyn, just sort of playing, maybe playing devil's advocate a little bit, in that we had. Um, this leader who was of the left, perhaps more importantly, had John McDonnell, um, who was is an excellent economist, really understands uh, democratic economies and so on. Um, and people just sort of look to them for guidance rather than developing or pushing for policies too much themselves. All they had to do was to defend the leadership. But now we're in a position where the leadership is, I, I wouldn't say Keir Starmer's, I, I've never said Keir Starmer's right wing, I don't believe that. Um, and as I said earlier, um, he's pretty much committed us to be continuing to being anti-austerity. But it's fairly clear that he's not off the left either. Um, Annalise Dodds, who is his shadow chancellor, um, was actually John McDonald's recommendation, to be fair. Um, but I don't think, I haven't seen any evidence so far that they are, that they that they're into that strategic socialist planning that um, to deal with those underlying issues that you mentioned, Bradley. And so we need to do it ourselves. We really need to be um, holding their feet to the fire, to use a cliche uh, argument. Um, and I think that if you have people pointing out what we've just said about the issues behind the current policy on. Um, you know, uh, on 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 private renters, then maybe that will give some moral weight to shifting things when it comes to uh, the leadership, because the leadership's unestablished at this moment. It's not that strong. We haven't had a party conference yet, which is going to start developing policy for this new era. Um, that, that's perhaps the way forward. And my optimistic hope is that after a few years of rediscovering um, how we actually campaign for radical policies instead of just protecting a leadership which is going to feed them to us, that we might actually get a healthier labour movement out of it at the end of it. 
Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. I think, um, yeah, the idea of we almost had it too easy in a ride under Corbyn, I think, um, yeah, and I think th- this is a chance, I think, because a, lo- a lot of people, the way I've sort of come to see the Corbyn movement now is that Corbyn and McDonnell were sort of the old guard of the radical left in the, in the Labour Party. Um, or even, not even that radical, really. A lot, a lot of Corbyn's views were probably more in line with, you know, sort of, so social democracy rather than sort of really radical democratic socialism but, but you know the, the more radical left relatively speaking to the, to what we had and they were sort of the old guard in the same way bernie sanders is in, is in the us and i think their probably enduring legacy will be bringing uh, a new generation of that sort of view into mainstream politics and i think that that will be the enduring legacy of corbyn certainly in the labor party is sort of revitalizing a, a younger generation to fight for more radical uh, left policy within the Labour Party uh, and I, I think what a lot of that movement has had over the last few years has been a leadership broadly in line with their views and, and broadly receptive to, to pushes for more democracy and more radical policy. The, the challenge for us now is, is, is organising within a party where some of the structures won't, won't be as, as um, receptive to that, certainly in the leadership office. And I suppose it, it will be a, a make or break for us as a movement will be whether we can effectively organise and maintain a coherent movement within the party whilst those obstacles are still there. Um, so, so yeah, and, and, and if we do succeed in that, if we, if we manage to stay together and, and, and have a coherent faction within the party that is effective and operates well, um, then that will be a, a sign of real maturity, I think, um, will have moved beyond simply being a, 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 a bandwagon for Corbyn and will have developed into a, prop, a proper movement, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I would agree. So speaking for the uh, that younger generation, uh, Callum, um, you mentioned before we were recording, actually, there's uh, there are some groups that are starting to develop. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that are starting to network. Do you want to talk Absolutely. about that? Absolutely. Um, so, as speaking as a student, I'm aware of now there is a, a group on the left for students that are starting to build a network between sort of socialist um, thinking societies in universities coming together in this network. They're calling upon the presidents or chairs um, or committee members to to join and have an input into how this network will look, this organization will look. So it's a very much a grassroots um, group they're trying to build here. Um, and I think it's a positive step going forward. I think that as we know of labor students in the past before it was abolished, um, but it was it was very undemocratic, it was unrepresentative. It was find that it found itself increasingly in competition or in, in direct opposition, sorry, to the uh, to the leadership, to the or even just the Labour Party as a whole. I think it was very much out of touch. So the idea of building a grassroots, uh, left-focused, students-based Labour movement, I think, is extremely exciting because students have so much to offer. Not only do they have a bit of time to offer, as we're often reminded, but also they have a lot of energy and a lot of passion and a lot of interest. And also we're talking about coming up with ideas coming from the membership from the grassroots and they do have a lot of fantastic ideas that they would love to have an input in so i think it's only positive so that's that's one thing that i've seen and then also we've got um 
obviously there's this um, don't leave organize is another group that's set up on the left to try and keep people in the party to have a positive impact and not just leave because the leadership's changed beyond what they what they would agree with. I think that that's, that's right, that we do stay within the party and we organize. I think we've said that before and we can keep saying that. And then I'm, as I've understood it, um, Momentum have also relaunched themselves as well. So they're, they're trying to change their image as being quite a centrally organized group into something a bit more grassroots. So I think the positive thing we can take out of this is that the grassroots are still at the focus of the left. And we're trying to keep it that way. And I think that's only a positive step going forward. Yeah. And, and I think it's good to see uh, younger members organising as well. That's something that um, uh, I experienced as a young activist. I think as my as my hair is starting to disappear, uh, this is obviously uh, less the case for me. But, um, you know, obviously when, you, when you're young, unfortunately, the, the downside is obviously that people don't take you as seriously. And obviously that is, that's discrimination, clearly. Um, but on the other side, if you sort of twist that round, um, it also kind of gives you a bit of a free pass to be more radical. Because at the end of the day, like, you're not supposed to know better. You know, you're not supposed to have, uh, you know, it's not, not some old fart trotting out some old lines, you know, for, from years ago or, or whatever that no one's going to listen to. Everybody knows, even if they're, even if they're saying, oh, they don't know what they're talking about, you know, they also know that you're the future, you know, and if you're demonstrating passion and commitment and you're going out and campaigning and all those sorts of things, and you really believe genuinely what you're saying, then actually you can be more radical uh, and and in due course, um, the more you network with other people, the more you research, uh, the more uh, you learn, you can turn those bright young ideas into coherent policy, right? Not watering it down, actually making it into something that's workable and perhaps even more radical. Um, and so that that's what I would say to people is just don't be afraid to speak out and and. and and say things this is your time to make mistakes maybe but also you might hit on some great ideas that later on are going to change things uh, considerably for people um so yeah it's it's great to see uh, oh, i'm i'm starting to sound like an old man already this is what i mean but you know yeah, it's like, uh, to be the youth <laughs> yeah for for the next um four weeks you are still quite young callum you're not you're not over the hill yet you know yeah well you know it's um i'll, I'll cling to that for as long for as long as i can but um <laughs> but it applies not just to the young of course whatever uh, and not just in the labor party and your trade unions as well once you've joined one do get active in your branches because there's going to be a lot of work to do um there's going to be hell to pay for this government. And it's, it's, I think it's our time um, yeah. to change the world. Um, we, you know, the analogy is shown uh, quite frequently. Um, but, you know, the last time we had a massive upheaval like this, the Second World War, um, once the war was over, once it was won, and I know we shouldn't be using bellicose language, but once the crisis was over, we won the peace. 
and that's what we need to do. We need to win the win, uh, win the peace and build a new world from the ashes of the old. Solidarity. Yeah. yeah. Um, and on that note, I think uh, we will uh, end it there. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Callum Roper. Thank you, everyone. Stay safe as always. And uh, Bradley also. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Uh, stay home, join a union, uh, stay safe. And uh, next week, we're hoping to actually have uh, Mary McKay. Uh, obviously, she is uh, a uh, key worker. She's working at, at, the, at the moment, so it's been quite difficult to get hold of her. Um, but uh, we're told that uh, she will be able to join us uh, next week. We're just building participation for, for the eventual appearance of Mary. That's, that's what it is. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but until that time, as, uh, as the others have said, stay safe. Stay home, protect the NHS, save lives, don't worry about what the government says, do the important thing, follow the actual science, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.